Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you wake up and before you bound out the door... Often we're looking in the mirror and we may pick out a negative attribute, normally a physical attribute about ourselves that we don't like. And then we shoulder that idea that physically we're less than. And I think we almost inherit that sense that we are less than. So it's about thinking differently. When you look in the mirror, thinking about what your body can do, not what it looks like, but what is gonna help you achieve that day. It may not necessarily be a positive body attribute, but it will certainly be something about yourself, your character, that you can hold in mind as you go about your day. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast. My name is Poppy Jamie, a recovering perfectionist and the founder of award-winning mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect. Like the app, this show is about hitting pause and taking time to look after our mind and soul. In this series, I explore how we can make life better in 2020. How can we reduce stress, enjoy life, bounce back from setbacks and get in flow? My guests will be sharing their expert advice and I hope you join me on the journey. Our theme music is courtesy of Mindstream. Visit mindstream.com to learn more about how their music and environments help you sleep, relax, focus and move or find their music on any streaming platform. Let's crack on with the show. You may know already, but yesterday it was World Mental Health Day, a very important day on the calendar for us to take a moment to reflect on how our mental health is and how the mental health of others around us is. Mental Health Day should be every day, in my opinion, because our mood, mind is always fluctuating. That's being human. 
We have ups and downs and seasons where everything seems to be going wrong. And then other seasons when we're like, whoa, okay, things feel good. So wherever you are today, try to think about one thing you can do for yourself that feels nurturing. And maybe listening to this podcast could be that one thing. To celebrate Mental Health Day, I couldn't have chosen a more fitting guest. In this episode, I'm interviewing the brilliant Dr. Sarah Vora, or you may know her as the Mind Medic. A psychiatrist and author of The Mind Medic, Your Five Senses Guide to Leading a Calmer, Happier Life, she turns mental wellness tips into practical, easy-to-follow lifestyle changes that have a big impact. It is a true honor to have her on the show today. I hope you enjoy. What is your favorite quote and one that you return to often? It's really simple, but it's anything is better than nothing. I feel like I use that day in, day out, whether it's in my personal life, in my professional life, when you know my daughter says, oh, actually, I don't think I can do this. Well, anything is better than nothing. Or my husband feeling that he's not really in the mood for a workout. And I kind of push him and say, your mood's going to be better. Any movement is better than nothing. And similarly with my patients, because I think we often feel like we have to go all in on something or not bother at all. And I think actually having that reminder that even small steps will build and accumulate into a, a bigger, more positive picture. I love that. And that really speaks to what we're going to talk about today in uh, your book. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of lately? I think life's unpredictable. I think if anything, the last few months has taught us that we cannot, we couldn't have anticipated this last year, the year Mm. before. And I think it's really shown me not to take anything for granted. I think sometimes we can get lost in our own heads, dreaming big things and not enjoy the present. So I think what it's really allowed me to do is reevaluate what's important and what was I spending time dithering over because other people or society thought that that was what I should be doing. So I think that's one of the biggest lessons that I've learned, certainly in the last few months. Do you actually feel we're kind of being forced to become mentally stronger? I think any change in circumstances is going to force us to adapt. So I don't think it's necessarily about being stronger. And I think often, particularly at the start of lockdown, social media, for all it's got its positives around social connection, you do very easily get trapped in that comparison. And that comparison cycle can fuel this idea that people are locking down better than you or people (laughs) seem to be coping better than you're coping. But I think every set of individual circumstances are different. Mm. And it's thinking about how you can adapt and actually embracing negative emotions. So it's not about being happier, being stronger. It's about embracing even the negative feelings. If you feel Mm. angry, feel angry. If you feel disappointment, feel disappointment. But allow that to fuel change and and change that's going to be positive for you in the long run. And I also love that you being a psychiatrist, and especially in your book, when you write about kind of having uncomfortable emotions is okay. Like to have that reassurance that actually when you're not feeling good, that's absolutely fine is so refreshing to hear. Absolutely. And if you think about when we log on to social media, we're faced with everyone's highlights reel. And even when we see a a negative emotion or um, a negative image, 
being portrayed on social media is quite jarring because we mm -hmm. don't expect it. But actually when people are showing a sort of a more 360 approach, people are, are saying, oh, this is not why I follow you. Oh, I only follow you for the positive. I don't follow you to see you on your down day. But actually, what is that saying? That's saying that actually we can't experience negative emotion and we can't learn from negative emotion. So I think it is really important to embrace the negative and to learn from it as well. How do you define happiness? Because I, I guess this actually question really does lead on to what you've just said, because I think we've had a, a warped view of happiness in a way. I think happiness is very individual to everyone. I think happiness, you can feel happy in a moment. You can feel happy across a, a larger time frame. I think it's a, it's a state of mind. For me personally, happy is when I feel balanced between sort of my personal life, my professional life, goals for the future, things that I'm, I'm working towards. That for me is my definition of happiness. So lovely. So I would love to talk about, obviously, your experience online, because about four years ago, you took what you were doing in the clinic room and shared it and made it so democratic that we could all learn from your wisdom, your experience, your training, which was so new and revolutionary at the time, really, because nobody was talking about mental health. How did the Mind Medic come about and what would you say are your greatest worries about the mental health content that you do see online? So going back to 2016, I was getting really frustrated with the information that I was seeing online that a lot of the time it wasn't coming from credible sources. Um, people often mistake numbers, the, that elusive blue tick as being a reflection of experience. And actually people not being held account. So, you know, if you've got a large platform, you do have a responsibility in terms of the content that you are sharing and that you are putting out there to make sure that it is accurate. I, I sensed a real frustration in that regard. And also with what I do day to day, I'm only making a small difference with the people that I see in clinic. And actually, how do you translate that clinic experience, but broaden it out to the general public? Because if we think about mental illness, 75% of those individuals with a mental illness will have first developed symptoms before the age of 24. So actually, it's really about those kind of early experiences. It's really about getting people early and getting them used to recognizing symptoms that might suggest that they're struggling and nipping it in the bud to avoid it from accumulating. And so I think it was the combination really of the frustration that I was seeing with the misinformation online, the frustration that I felt that I was only making a small difference in, in where I work and wanting to broaden that experience as well. That is amazing. And I have to say your Instagram, and I encourage everyone to follow the Mind Medic and I'll put all the details in the show notes. Like every single day you're you know, sharing tips, but really useful tips. And this brings me to talk about your book. It is like a gift of self-awareness and everyone and anyone can take such value from this book. So I would love to dive into some of the tools that I found in particular really super helpful. First of all, I know every single person asks you this, but the five senses, how did that come about? So the five senses was really born out of this idea that when people were coming to me saying that they were they were struggling, they couldn't always pinpoint exactly what was going on for them. And often we can't always isolate one particular reason why someone is feeling the way they do. But I felt like the five senses really helped pick out maybe those 
life stresses that may be playing, having a part to play. So I would ask them really simply, is there anything that you've seen, heard, smelt, felt or tasted that could explain why you feel the way you do? And I found that actually very quickly, I was learning that they were spending too much time in front of a screen, so sense of sight, sense of hearing. So maybe they were in a really overcritical relationship and were locking down with that person and suddenly felt that they were fueling inadequacies in themselves, fueling low self-esteem. Smell, so smelling the great outdoors. So especially during the early lockdown period, people weren't even getting outside, maybe for an hour, if that, for the dose of daily exercise. So very, very quickly, we could kind of pinpoint the life stresses and then get into the really powerful position of doing something about it. I love what you were saying about, I think I heard it on another podcast, about how often people will tell you that they feel anxious, but not know what they feel anxious about. Yeah. And I know, I'm going to speak from personal experience, that the last week or so, I have felt anxious myself. And I think a lot of people find that surprising. Oh, you're a psychiatrist. So surely you're immune from any, you know, negative emotion. But mm. I am only human. I do experience you know, feelings of anxiety. And again, I was kind of walking through my senses and I realized that actually because I was going into clinic more and doing more face-to-face, because I face a commute, I'm drinking a lot of coffee on my, on my mm. commute to and from work. So my sense of taste, I was noticing that I was seeing my inbox constantly full come 9am in the morning and having to root through that. So Again, thinking about tactics that I could put into place, such as setting myself a caffeine curfew, making sure that I'm not drinking caffeine sort of too late into the afternoon, into the evening, and being really disciplined around my email inbox and not allowing it to accumulate. I would love to talk about your tool, um, The Day in the Life Of. The reason I love this tool is often I think I definitely am a victim of this. I'm comparing my mood or my baseline to someone else's. And actually what I love about this tool is suddenly you're just comparing your own equilibrium to your own equilibrium kind of thing. How did that come about and what is the tool? So again, I think often when I see people in clinic, they can talk about being worried about someone else's mental health and saying, you know, there was something that was different about them, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And it's about slowing the conversation right down and thinking back, well, what was their baseline? And I always use my daughter as an example of this because, I mean, she's five. So you probably think, what has she got to be worried about? But I tell you, sort of playground Barneys, actually, there's plenty for her to be worried about. (laughs) So actually, she has got a baseline that she follows every day without fail. So 6.15 in the morning, she bounds into our bedroom she demands to get changed. She's generally quite content, very loud on the morning. I get a change, no, no problem. Come downstairs, she'll have her breakfast and then she'll want to watch her favorite cartoons before school. And when I drop her off, she's waving me at the gate and she's very content. Now, if I noticed that it was 7 a.m. and I'd got myself sorted and she hadn't stirred, or maybe it was a real struggle to get her changed on the morning, maybe she was tearful or just feeling very angry, Maybe she didn't want to watch her favorite cartoons or was off her food. So very quickly I've generated, and it's not even 9 a.m., a few things that have shifted from her baseline that might suggest that there's something going on for her, whether it's in her physical health or with her mental health. And also you can do that for yourself as well. That's it. And again, I noticed for myself the last few 
days in, in the last week or so that my sleep's been off. And that's a shift from my baseline because normally I'm, you know, touch wood, I'm normally a very good sleeper. But I'm noticing that actually I'm waking up in the night. Um, I'm waking up earlier than I normally do. So again, that's a, a change. And it's then forcing you to evaluate, okay, what could be different? So maybe I don't spend so long on my phone or binging that box set too late into the evening. Maybe I need to get to bed earlier. Maybe I need to reevaluate how much caffeine I'm drinking. So again, it's thinking about that baseline, thinking about those shifts and thinking about what's changed that could contribute and actually what simple change you can make to bring you back to a more level playing field. So a lot of questions that we get um, from the podcast um, listeners is how do you support a friend or a loved one who is struggling with mental health? So let's say you've noticed that they've changed from their baseline. How do you even confront that? And how do you support someone without almost taking on then maybe their pain? Because it's so easy to do. I think first and foremost, this is not a conversation. This is not just going to be one conversation that you have with that person. This might be constantly chipping away, constantly coming back to the conversation and checking in. Because I think all too often we can have a conversation which, which starts along, how are you? The other person might worry that they're going to burden you or that you don't actually have any time to listen and will just placate you with, I'm fine. And if we're going to follow sort of the numerous mental health campaigns that focus on that one conversation, actually, you may feel, well, actually, job done. I've asked them how they are. They said they're fine. So we move on. So I felt it was really important to develop a tool which is about coming back to that conversation, not settling if you've got a gut instinct or if their baseline suggests that something is going on for them is having the confidence to keep coming back to that conversation. Because if anything, what it shows to that person is right. Okay. This is the third time they've come back to check in on me. Maybe they do want to know, maybe they do want to help. Whereas if that conversation is just left hanging after the first attempt, then it just kind of compounds this idea that, well, they're not interested. They were just doing it to be polite what you know what's the point no one wants to hear what I'm going through so the tool that I developed is something called face fear so it's thinking about that baseline first and foremost having a face-to-face conversation which I know is quite difficult in these times but you know platforms sort of these um, online platforms are really helpful for having a a face-to-face conversation with someone being attentive so when you ask them how they are just sit back listen um, and don't kind of force your agenda too soon c is remaining calm so if they do open up from the first instance it's about trying to keep your emotions in check it's not to say that you're not deserving as the listener to feel upset angry guilty whatever it may stir up in you but it's about holding those in mind and to not allow them to bias what the the person's telling you because if you think about it if you're worried that someone is going to be really upset with you know what's going on for you being faced with them tearful may just compound this idea oh no one can take this I'm better off just keeping it to myself e is encouraged so if you are faced with the I'm fine it's about encouraging that person to continue to open up Then the fear aspect is if you feel that you've just really hit a wall and you're not getting anywhere, F is fact. So what have you noticed? So come back to that baseline. So if I'm talking, say, to my daughter, you're not coming into my bedroom until seven o'clock in the morning. You're off your food. You're really grumpy in the morning. You're not wanting to watch your favorite cartoon. 
So again, I'm confronting that individual with things that I've noticed that almost you can't really argue with, but that, that I've noticed that is different. Now, saying that, if I was to reel off a few things that I'd noticed about you, that the instant response for a lot of us maybe to get defensive, no, what you're on about, you're wrong, you know, you're imagining things. So the E is about explaining and putting it into context. So I've noticed that you're not bounding into my bedroom till seven. You're always up at six. I've noticed that you are turning away your usual favorite cereal. I notice that you're crying and normally you're very happy on a morning. So it's about putting those worries into context. And then finally, the A and the R is about agreeing an action and reviewing. So if you are faced you know, with a continuous defense of I'm fine, honestly, leave it, you can reiterate to that person, look, I'm really worried about you. How about I can check in with you next week? And, and you, you put that date to the diary to, to make sure that that conversation doesn't get forgotten about. The other thing to bear in mind is that that person may be feeling or st- worried or feeling down because maybe they've gone through a breakup so actually their difficulties are understandable given the context of what they're going through so you coming back to them in a couple of weeks time things may be back on track because actually they've had time to digest and process the breakup but you'll never know that unless you come back and review how things are for them okay so you've maybe said right we'll check in next week as the person checking in you could be deeply worried about this person how what is your advice to kind of as in the supporting role not take on the worry or the pain someone else is going through but remain create this space for them to be able to talk and also kind of I suppose keep your strength I think it's only natural you know even myself as a psychiatrist I hear lots of people through experiencing trauma lots of difficulties lots of heartache people that have mental health disorders and are really struggling. And I, even as a professional, have to make sure that I look after my mental health outside of that space. Mm. So it's about thinking about the things that keep you positive, that uh, help to optimize your mental well-being. So I know for me, it's things like exercise or the importance of social connection and spending time outdoors with my family. So thinking about the things that are going to, to boost your mental well-being outside of those windows where you're perhaps shouldering someone else's difficulties. Such an important tip. So I loved the tool about the mirror mirror tool. And again, I keep coming back to the fact that you being a psychiatrist, giving these tools is just I think really motivating because so often I've previously heard similar things in quite woo-woo terms and you kind of eye roll and you think, is that really going to work? But when then, when you actually say, no, no, this is really helpful, you're like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so um, I would love for you to kind of talk to us about what is the mirror mirror tool and how does it work? So when you wake up and before you bound out the door, whether it's to do the school run, whether it's to go to meet your friends for a coffee, to do a workout class. Often we're looking in the mirror and we may pick out a negative attribute, normally a physical attribute about ourselves that we don't like. So it may be, oh, my thighs are touching, I feel fat, um, my eyes are too close together, you know, whatever it may be. And then we dart out of the door and then we we shoulder that idea that, physically we're less than and I think we almost inherit that that sense that we are less than based on a soul mirror check and I suppose it's thinking about how much 
power and how much hold those negative feelings about yourself, about your body have over you, how you sort of go about your, your usual day. So it's about thinking differently. When you look in the mirror, thinking about what your body can do, not what it looks like, but what is going to help you achieve that day. And I can guarantee that even if you're someone that really struggles with low self-esteem, really poor body image, that you can find something that your body will help you achieve that day. Whether it is just the fact that you're privileged to even be able to walk out the door. Maybe it's the fact that you're a really caring individual. You're a hard worker. There will be something that you can identify in yourself it may not necessarily be a positive body attribute, but it will certainly be something about yourself, your character that you can hold in mind as you go about your day. Isn't that just brilliant? It takes maybe a few seconds, but just to change how we are talking to ourselves in these pivotal moments. And you're right, like you can say a horrible thing to yourself and and then it infiltrates everything you do or like even your decisions. And I just thought it was... When I, when I was reading about that tool, I've just, you know, really noticed a difference in the last two weeks. So A, thank you so much. And B, like really encourage everyone just to take that mindful moment, especially when you're kind of looking in the mirror on a Monday morning. I would love to talk about um, something else you address in your book, uh, which is about worries. If anyone knows me or my family, we are Olympic warriors. <laughs> we can worry <laughs> about everything. <laughs> and we worry about all everyone else's worries too. And um, but you have a great strategy to kind of, I suppose, like divvy up your worries to when you should be worrying about them. And also your very, very clever PS worries. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. So first and foremost, what I'm going to say about this tool, it's not about eradicating worry but it's about deciding when and where you do your worrying because worry is a normal human emotion. You know, we're all natural worriers. It may be that we worry about our family members, we worry about ourselves, but it's about how much we allow that worry to take hold and to run away with us. So as an example, I was worrying yesterday that I hadn't got the link for our meeting, for our recording. Now, I could carry on ruminating about that worry and let it run away with me, just consume every ounce of time and energy that I have to the point that it avoids me doing anything else productive. But actually, I turn that worry into a problem that I can solve by emailing and saying, what's the link for the recording tomorrow? So instantly, I've turned that worry into a problem-solving worry. So something that I can turn into a problem that I can solve. Now, a might-not worry is something along the lines of, what happens if we're recording tomorrow and Poppy thinks I'm really boring and that I've got nothing interesting to say and she storms off and she ends the recording? Can you see how that can quickly snowball? And it might not even happen, but I allow it to consume so much of my time and energy. So what I ask people to do is when you experience worry during the day, ask yourself, can I turn this worry into a problem I can solve? Mm. If so, solve the problem. And it might be something that you rely on other people to help support you with to solve the problem. Or is this a might not worry? Is this something that actually that there's no identifiable problem that I can solve and it's just going to consume a lot of time and energy? If it's the might not variety, I always say, Use a curfew. Last thing in the day for me is the, is the best time and allow yourself to 
identify that this is a might not worry. It's not going to serve me to worry at nine o'clock in the morning whether Poppy will or won't like me. I'm going to come back to this later on. So at 7.30, I'm going to have generated a list of might not worries that have cropped up in the day that I acknowledge. So acknowledge the worry. Say this is a might not worry. I'm not going to worry about it now. I'm going to jot it down and I'm going to come back to it later in my curfew. And then come 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, whenever you choose to do your worry curfew, review your list of worries. And actually, you might think, well, actually, I can strike off the, the fact that Poppy stormed out halfway through the recording because she thought I was boring, because that didn't happen. And, and reflect on what worrying about that first thing on the morning could have got in the way of. It could have got in the way of a really, really interesting, important conversation. It could have got in the way of the fact that I could have enjoyed myself a lot more. So that can be really very empowering because it just shows that you can be in control of when and where you do your worrying and allow how much it then impacts the rest of your day. It's so useful. And I use this because I I went on a date and I was so worried. I was like, he just doesn't like me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and I was like no come on listen to the mind medic you can worry about this later get on with your day and it was just so useful obviously by the end of the day I was like okay this is so silly to like have spent my entire day worrying whether someone liked me or not so super useful used it in the last few days it's excellent so thank right. you for that for sorting no, out my dating life <laughs> <laughs> um so I'd love to shift gears a bit um to talk about kind of some of the causes that you're finding for stress and anxiety across all the people that you work with Uh, what would you say the main causes of stress in your patients are it can be very individual so for me I work predominantly with the younger um, generation so a lot of it is feeling overwhelmed about unrealistic workloads friendships relationships again it's very individual there's no one answer as to why someone may be experiencing stress I have to admit, the last few months in lockdown, I think I've noticed a big trend in people experiencing stress. So, you know, working from home, being disconnected from those around us, having to get used to the new norm has allowed a lot of us to perhaps experience stress for the first time. I know countless people that have said, oh, I don't struggle with my mental health. But the last few months has taught them that actually, even they have their limits, even there are Mm. things that kind of push them sort of teetering towards the edge. It's thinking about boundaries that you set yourself, particularly with working from home. I think for a lot of people, they blur the boundaries between their day and their night. So their, their work time and their downtime. And I know that I've experienced this myself, that you wake up in the morning and you think, right, I'm working from home today. Therefore, I must answer every email before I've even gone downstairs and I'm still in my pajamas and haven't showered. Because again, it's kind of this always on culture, this feeling that we always have to be accessible. We have to always be instantly responsive. So I think blurring of boundaries, the the inability to say no. And I think particularly during the early stages of the lockdown when no one had an excuse to say that they couldn't go to a night out or couldn't do something. You were saying yes to every Zoom invite, left, right and centre, because actually there was no excuse. (laughs) Because, well, what else are you going to be doing? Everyone's isolating at home. But again, thinking about how continuing to say yes and feeling overwhelmed to the point that it's compromising your ability to have some downtime for yourself and how that may lead to stress. 
where do you think this always on culture comes from? Why do you think we are like more than ever? I think it is not saying it's caused by social media, but I think it's mm. fueled by social media because we only have got to log on to see what Barry from Scunthorpe is doing, you know, first thing <laughs> in the morning. So actually we, we've never had that before. And I think the thing that's really important to bear in mind, if you are someone that does check your phone as soon as you get up in the morning, ask yourself why you're doing it. Mm. As an example, I'm someone that generally I do like to work out in the morning because I find that it does set me up for the day. But there are some mornings where I just dread it and I don't want to. So I decide to snooze that alarm. And then I might check my phone on the morning and I might see someone's post-workout selfie and they've already got up and fired off five, six emails in the day. Now, that might either inspire me to think, oh God, I shouldn't be so lazy. I should just go and just get the workout done. Or it may fuel feelings of inadequacy, fuel feelings of guilt that I should have done. I should have got up. I should have done the workout. I'm so lazy. I'm worthless. Look how motivated they are. So there's two separate paths that it could go on, but it's based on how you're feeling in yourself. So the, the first thing I would suggest that you do is first thing in the morning, having that first half hour, an hour as a screen-free zone. But if you are someone that wants to access, you know, social media, Think about why you're doing so. Is it going to be inspiring? Is it going to motivate you? Is it going to educate you? Is it going to set you up for the day? If the answer is no, then allow yourself to set your own pace for the day and set your own mood. Because something like that, an image you see, can instantly dictate your feeling throughout the rest of the day. At what point should someone seek out a professional like yourself? So I think for someone, if we come back to something like the worry tool, so someone may find that worry is just consuming every ounce of their time, their energy. It may be impacting their ability to look after themselves. Maybe they've got people that depend on them. So they maybe have children or, or vulnerable family members that they're not able to look after. Maybe it's impacting their ability to work. Maybe they have sort of more negative feelings of self-harm or not wanting to be alive. So in that moment, I would say, actually, it's, it's really important to seek professional support. The things that I look for is actually it's a constant state of feeling low, anxious, you know, whatever it may be that impacts your sort of daily functioning, whether that's in a personal or professional capacity. I guess this also brings me on to then what point is medication necessary and how long should someone try alternatives tools before feeling like the medication is the next step? Again, there's no single correct response for this. And what I want to kind of say first and foremost is being offered medication or choosing to go on medication is by no means a failure. And I think all too often that can be the narrative that's pushed around medication. And it can be really quite harmful because mm. actually if someone is struggling, it may be that they're struggling to such a degree that they're not able to put into practice the things that their therapist is suggesting. Yeah. And we find that a lot because, you know, things like sort of psychological therapies, sort of the sort of the talking therapies are incredibly helpful for making this sort of medium to long-term changes. But if you're someone that is so depressed you're really unmotivated you're not able to concentrate on the, the the skills that are being shared with you to even put it into practice then there may be a role for medication to help 
lift your depression enough for you to be able to engage with the one-on-one work or, or the therapy work that's been identified as helpful for you. And again, there may be an idea that medication, once you're on it, that you're on it lifelong. And again, there's no correct answer with that. Some people do take medication long-term. Others may just need it enough for them to be able to engage with the therapy. And then there may be a time where it's safe and appropriate for them to come off the medication. Again, I come back to my first point. Medication is absolutely not a sign of failure. Medication does work well when it's alongside something like a psychological therapy, and it may actually make engaging in that psychological therapy a lot easier. So have a conversation with your family doctor, your GP, or if you're under a a mental health team with your psychiatrist about it, if if it's felt that that's an option for you. Do you think the cultural narrative around it has actually been quite detrimental um, in the sense that you know there's this kind of narrative that people over prescribe and actually you know there isn't enough information about medication like a lot of people wouldn't even know what medication even means for mental health what even it does to the brain yeah and I think again it's kind of taking the information that you see online with a a pinch of salt Mm -hmm. and really about seeking sort of more professional advice and support around it. I think that there is certainly this idea that psychiatrists just prescribe. We don't actually, we do engage people in more sort of therapeutic work that doesn't involve medication. And I think that sometimes comes as a surprise to people because if we think even how psychiatrists are portrayed on um, not only social media, but how they may be portrayed in films or TV. And they, they it may kind of push this idea that all they do is prescribe. So I think, you know, we have moved a lot in the last 10, 20 years. And we are focusing more on the sort of the more psychological work. But it's not to say that there's never a role for medication. There will always be a role for medication. But it's it's very much down to your individual circumstances. So one thing um, I hear a lot is people talking about a chemical imbalance um, in their brain. What is there evidence, do you know, to even show that this is true? And are there any blood tests that people can do? Or is chemical fluctuations like normal? So you mentioned um, blood tests. So in terms of sort of a mental illness, it's not like a, a physical illness where you may you know, say, for instance, you tripped over a pothole in the road, and you've hurt your foot, and you go into A&E, you get an x-ray, it confirms that there's a a fracture, and then there's a treatment there and then for it, that there isn't that in sort of mental illness. Um, It does require, you know, your psychiatrist, your mental health team to get to know you over a long period of time. And it's very much based on the information that they gather from you, the information that they gather from the other people around you, and from how they observe you when you come to clinic as well. So all of those things can help kind of piece together the jigsaw and and to reach, um, not necessarily a diagnosis, but just an understanding of, of why these difficulties have come to you at this particular moment in time. And also, you know, the one thing I do, like, I really picked up on in your book is going back to really kind of our our first points, allowing yourself to feel the uncomfortable emotions, like it would be normal if you're grieving, that is a normal feeling of prolonged sadness, not necessarily, you know, something that people should be worrying about. Would you would you mind sharing a bit more about that? 
So again, like you say, you know, if someone is experiencing loss, and again, the last few months, people have lost loved ones, or they've lost maybe a job role. Um, mm-hmm. And it is normal to experience sadness, and like you say, prolonged sadness with those. But again, I come back to how with those sorts of things, there's kind of an expectation that that will ease with time. And if, if it's showing no no signs of easing and it's continuing to impact your day-to-day then it is worth seeking support and if you're someone that you recognize that a loved one is struggling it's about recognizing that and getting support for them and what I would also urge people to do is never to think oh I should um, just ride it out I should just you know this is what's happened so I'm entitled to feel like this I, I don't deserve to access professional support Everyone does, even if it's just to query something, even if it's, I'm not sure, but this has happened, alert someone to it. Because even if you've alerted your GP or your mental health team or, you know, a friend or colleague, it's about them being able to keep tabs on you to organize that review, to check in that if things aren't showing no signs of let up, what's the next step? But if you never kind of bring it attention or it's on their radar, then it can very easily get forgotten. And in the meantime, you may continue to struggle and things may get worse. I think there is a worry I, I find kind of in, in some of the letters that we receive there's this worry that if I'm feeling like this I'm always going to feel this way can mental health change absolutely you know there are people that may have a depressive episode or an episode of anxiety and then never experience a clinical depression or a clinical anxiety you know years down the line and I think what people like Matt Haig Bryony Gordon, Fern Cotton, Pornabell do so incredibly well is that they instill hope in people that actually they have shared their lived experience, their subjective experience of what it's like to really hit rock bottom, but they instill hope that actually things have got better, but that they continue to live with alongside, however you want to phrase it, or with their mental illness. And I think that can be incredibly validating for someone to know that, okay, they were in the position that I'm in now and look at them now. They're learning to live, you know, with their mental illness. And I think that can be incredibly empowering. That's brilliant. Personally, what are your favourite tips that you put into the book? So I think the worry dump certainly is one of my favourites. And I think also saying no, um, because I'm someone that I do struggle to say no. Actually, I think sometimes saying no conjures up this idea that we're being selfish or that we don't have time for anyone but ourselves and that we're being unhelpful. And actually, it's about thinking what is saying no um, saving you from or what's it allowing you to concentrate on, which is more important. So I think that for me is one of my favorite tools within the book is, is forcing you to reflect on what's important to you personally socially and from a working point of view getting those down on paper and then coming back to any decision or any request that's asked of you coming back to those three and thinking is saying yes to this thing going to bring me closer to x y and z if the answer is no then having the confidence to to say no or to say at the very least to say i'll think about it this reminded me about how after reading your book, I realized that I'd been setting my goals all wrong. Would you mind sharing why it's so important to be specific about your um, goal setting and rather than too general? Because I think if you come in and say, I, I just really want to be more confident as an example of a goal, 
confident how how are you going to measure that and how are you going to know when you've reached that particular goal it's very difficult whereas if you're someone that says I really want to be more confident or assertive in a team meeting and get my point across there's your specific example and it's very easy to demonstrate when you've reached that rather than having this kind of very general very woolly idea that you can't quite pin down and it's about making sure that you break your goals into really manageable mini goals So I think all too often we feel we have to go from A to B instantaneously, but thinking about what are the small changes that we can make, what are the small wins that we can demonstrate that we're almost there, almost there to our ultimate goal. So as an example, um, if we come back to that idea that we want to be more confident in asserting ourselves on a Zoom meeting, and maybe we've got like 10 or 12 office members that are all battling for the mic. Now, it may be that you can't suddenly, you know, unmute your mic and express what you're feeling because that just feels very overwhelming. And if you jump to your ultimate goal too soon and fail, it can reinforce this idea that, you know, I was being overly ambitious. What's the point? I'm not going to ever be able to assert my own opinion. And that can be quite frightening and that can kind of knock your confidence. You may never try to um, reach that goal again. You may just draw a line under it and say it's not for you. So demonstrating your more confidence, you may break it down into mini goals, which may be around kind of nonverbal. So kind of nodding along or disagreeing or, and that for you might just be a small win, just a nod over a Zoom maybe more than you were doing previously. Maybe previously you were just staring like a rabbit caught in the headlights and never contributing verbally or non-verbally. So maybe that simple non-verbal gesture, so me sort of nodding along or, nah, I don't agree, can be a small win for you. That can slowly over a number of weeks reach you to that ultimate goal of you being able to have the confidence to say, I disagree with you and this is the reason why. And this kind of leads me to my last question, um, which I thought was a nice note to finish on, which is celebrating small wins and why it's so important that we really do remind ourselves to uh, celebrate things that often we can just kind of let slide by. Why is it important and and what kind of things do you uh, suggest people celebrate and how to celebrate? Again, uh, if we come back to this idea around goals and, and goals that we have in life and if we never celebrate those small wins, then, you know, what are we kind of, what are we doing? I can sometimes get lost in this idea that I'm not doing right by my daughter. Am I doing enough? Am I doing too little? And I can really wrestle with that. Whereas actually, I can start to celebrate a small win that, you know, she's healthy, happy. If she wants to swim the entire length of the swimming pool, I can celebrate the fact that actually she's dipped her toe in the water and that's a small win. I don't have to wait till she's swum an entire length for us to have a celebration about that. Because actually, if you celebrate those small wins, it's really motivational. It kind of, okay, and it boosts your confidence. You think, actually, yeah, I can do this, right? I'm going to try and dip both toes in the water this time or maybe I'm going to swim half a length. I think celebrating those small wins, particularly when you hit a wall, can be incredibly helpful and uplifting and kind of push you to continue to aim towards that ultimate goal. 
And really this leaps so straight back to your first initial quote, which is doing something is better than nothing. It really speaks to the power of your book that you have really creatively broken down so many of these tools that you can integrate into your lifestyle that has such a huge impact. So I will put the link uh, to that. And also, um, but where is the best place for people to find you online or ask any questions? So I generally live on Instagram. So it's at the mind medic on Instagram. Okay, fantastic. And again, I'll put that in the show notes for everyone um, to click through. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has just been full of just so many nuggets uh, to take away and practice. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Of course, it would be amazing and very appreciated if you wouldn't mind hitting subscribe and sharing this podcast. You can find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram. DM me questions or any guest suggestions. I'd love to hear from you. And also, if you have a moment, download Happy Not Perfect. It's my mindfulness app that helps you manage stress, anxiety, sleep, and ultimately makes you feel happier every single day in less than five minutes. See you next time. Sending you lots of love and energy. Till then. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 